coming up on today's show, is democracy dying? Certainly seems like it's under a lot of stress, isn't it? The extremes are taking over. We're going to chat with Tom Nichols, an author and professor, and find out how we got here and where we might be headed. OPEC hits an impasse on oil prices. What does it mean for us? And a cabinet shuffle by Premier Jason Kenney today. Nothing major. Maybe a little political retribution? We'll get details. Basically, the question I have for Tom Nichols is, what the hell's happened? What's gone on? I think it's a question that a lot of us ask ourselves each and every day. You know, you listen to this show, and I hear from you every day, and some of the people who call in, and then you all text me and ask that question, what's, what's going on? What's happening here? The positions that are taken and, and sometimes, you know, violently almost defended by our fellow citizens leave a lot of us truly confounded. You know, most of us see a lot of this stuff as nonsense, very easily disproven, but it becomes almost gospel, and it's absolutely unassailable to others. And it's spreading. And it's creeping in from the fringes on both the left and the right. Don't be fooled here. This isn't a strictly right-wing or left-wing thing. The extremes in our society seem to be dominating a lot of the conversation. Uh, It's the same rot spreading from both ends. And, uh, of course, there's unethical politicians ready to capitalize for their own benefit on it. But what has happened? What is going on with our society and where are we headed? We're going to chat with Tom Nichols, who is a professor... um, at the U.S. Naval War College. He's also an author of several books. We've talked to him before about the death of expertise, the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. A great, great book that I highly recommend. He has a new book coming out called Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And I don't know if it's a companion piece or not. We'll find out. Tom's joining us now. Uh, Good morning, Tom. How are you? Good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me. This new book seems almost an extension to the death of expertise, I think. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. You could send me a preview. That would be nice. But uh, it seems like <laughs> it, it's just it's the obvious extension of what happened when the death of expertise and the campaign against established knowledge took place. This is the obvious outcome, right? They're definitely related to the same phenomenon in modern advanced democracies, and that problem is narcissism and uh, self-absorption. Democracy relies on trust, it relies on cooperation, it relies on tolerance, and um, we've just, and I would say we in the United States, but also uh, Europe, Canada, the the advanced democracies, um, because of affluence, um, long periods of peace, um, high levels of standard of living. We've we've just gotten used to things kind of being the way we want them to be, and we don't think very much about other people, and we certainly don't take seriously other people, which was part of the death of expertise problem, but it's a much bigger problem when it comes to the kind of extremism and anti-democratic attitudes you were just talking about. How does it veer into that extremism, though? Is it just Is it just boredom? Is it wanting to be part of a fight, have some excitement injected into your life? Absolutely. Boredom is a huge part of it. Uh, you know, almost 70 years ago, there was a writer named Eric Hoffer who said that uh, societies are really ripe for an anti-democratic, illiberal takeover when they are bored. That boredom is one of the you know deadliest things that can happen to a democracy. But it's also narcissism. It's also a culture of 40 and 50 years of putting yourself first, thinking about yourself, and not really thinking about your fellow citizens as people that you have to deal with or compromise with or talk to. And I think that leads to tribalism, which is Mm -hmm. people who agree with me are great. They're on my side, they're on my team, and the people who don't agree with me are the enemy and they're evil and they have to be defeated. And and that seems to be where we are. There's not really any discussion at this point. It's sort of, uh, I I can tell by what t-shirt you're wearing whether or not I want to even hear what you have to say. 
pretty much. And I, you know, I'm not immune from that. I mean, I, I'm certainly not standing here as some example of saying, you know, I've figured out how to do it right. Um, there are people with whom I just don't want to have conversations anymore, which, yeah. you know, as a practicing political scientist and a teacher for over 30 years, you know, I, I, that's pretty startling to me that there are times where I just say, you know, I'm, I'm just not interested in this conversation. And, you know, I'll sit over here and you sit over there. Um, but if we all keep thinking that way, we're doomed. Uh, we can't, you can't, you can't make a democracy work on that. So what do we do? I mean, this is the thing because, I mean, doing what I do, Tom, and I, and I, and I talk with people who come from these extremist positions, and I know that presenting them with facts and data and evidence means nothing. In fact, it only emboldens the battle. There's, there's no progress to be right made there. Right. I, I, you know, counterintuitively, my answer to all this is kind of a tough love approach. And I've had a lot of disagreements with some good friends about this, where, you know, people say, well, when you run into these people with extreme views, you have to kind of reach out and you have to talk to them and you have to kind of understand where they're coming from. Um, I don't think that's worked. I think 30 or 40 years of trying to do that has blown up in our face. I think that, that we need to go back to a better and more stoic time where when someone says, you know, uh, Joe Biden stole the election with communist voting machines. You simply have to say, look, I'm not going to have this discussion with you. You're just wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you, and somewhere in your heart, you know you're wrong. And this, this discussion will demean both of us by having it. Don't we need better? And, and I think there, there is, that some of that shunning in the name of good common sense becomes absolutely imperative. And I, I know it, it's not comfortable, but it is the political equivalent of tough love. What about the politicians? Where do they fit into this? Because we have them, you know, in Canada, you have them in the United States, obviously, who are willing to sacrifice any sort of integrity, ethics, uh, democracy itself in the interest of their own self-gain and pander to that extremist base. Well, I think one thing we have to do is we have to get more comfortable. Uh, The people who care about democracy, whether they are the center-right, the center-left, um, you're not going to have a lot of conversations with people on the far left and certainly not with anybody on the on the far right. Um, but the people in that kind of big middle have to get more comfortable with building electoral coalitions among themselves and say, look, you know, we have to find the people that we think are decent, who are, you know, good stewards of democracy, not perfect, not not people that can give us everything we want or that we're going to agree on all the time, uh, but that we can all agree to vote on and to accept, even if later down the road we might part ways. Uh, I think one thing we've become very bad at, certainly in my country, is building coalitions, is reaching across party lines and saying, you know, for the sake of this election, um, you know, we're going to join hands and we're going to ignore some of the policies we might disagree on. Now, I think we did that in 2018, and I think we certainly did it in the 2020 presidential election, but it's but it's hard to do, and I think we have to get better at it. Uh, the book um, is called The Assault on Democracy. Um, how bad is it? I mean, how badly wounded has democracy been through all of this? Can it, can it survive, uh, or can it go back to what we all sort of recognize as democracy, a functional democracy? You know, the book actually was hard for me to write for a while because I started the book and I wanted to be optimistic. And I wanted to say, well, you know, much like with the death of expertise, I wanted to say, okay, here's a problem. How did we get here? And how do we get out of this? And as time went on, particularly during the pandemic, when in fact we started to split apart into warring camps over things like life and death and, you know, simple little things like wearing a mask, Mm -hmm. um, I started to become much more pessimistic. So, you know, I don't want to say we're doomed, but I think unless we have a serious course correction, and I think unless the people who really care about democracy regardless of how they feel about other policies, you know, join hands and decide to protect 
uh, this fragile experiment that's been going on in the world for you know two three hundred years, um, we're going to be in deep trouble because um, it's always easier to just turn on the TV and stare at your phone and and play uh, you know games and to ignore this while democracy kind of just melts away. And then one day you wake up and you find out that, you know, your choices don't really matter very much, even less than you, you thought they did, right. uh, you know, earlier. So it, it's, it's a really important thing to do. And it's a simple thing to do. Just pay attention. Read a newspaper. Make sure you vote. Um, you know, if you can do that much, you're ahead of the game. Yeah, the things we've always been told to do and we used to do. <laughs> we used to, we absolutely used to do it, and it, we didn't think it was that hard to do. Yeah, and and now we think we're just too, you know, uh, burdened and busy, and that's that's just nonsense. We can do this. Excellent. Okay. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. You bet. That is Tom Nichols, who is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and also an author who's done a lot of work around this. We're going to talk about a development that happened earlier this week. There's been some pretty good news on the oil price front for our province. Uh, It's up. Yesterday, it was trading somewhere around 75 bucks, which is its highest level since about 2018. And of course, whenever that happens, it means billions of dollars added to the bottom line in our province. Now, this week, OPEC met to talk about setting new production limits, you know, the means of regulating supply and thereby manipulating the price. But those talks broke off without an agreement on Monday. So where do we go from here? Let's get some insight. We're going to chat now with David Yeager, who is a consulting advisor to oil service executives and energy policy analysts and writer. Uh, David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Uh, Good morning. So this impasse at OPEC on Monday, um, what happened? What's the story there? What, what, What caused the breakdown? The flaw with OPEC, and this goes back decades, has always been uh, quotas. What mm-hmm. share of the pie do I get? I mean, the whole the whole point of supply management is the world can only absorb uh, X amount of barrels from OPEC, and uh, and therefore the mem- OPEC members have a very complex formula, a geopolitical formula, based on how much uh, what their share would be. So what happened was uh, was two years ago. Of course, uh, uh, the fact that there's disunity in OPEC is hardly new. It's been at one time Iran and Iraq were you know in a shooting war with each other back a while ago. But in March of uh, last year, two the two leaders in uh, in OPEC, uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, of course, were in a, con- a race to the bottom. They had a, a very public fight about who could produce oil the cheapest. A month later, after the lockdowns, sanity prevailed, and they all got together and pulled 10 million barrels a day off the market. The issue this time is they had a two-year deal in Abu Dhabi, which is a growing OPEC producer. They've got uh, undeveloped reserves. Uh, their 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 formula, their share under the OPEC uh, formula allotment quota was set in 2018. They've put a lot of money into more production. So the, the current agree, agreement that was tabled this week um, that was rejected by Abu Dhabi was that we would uh, we, we, we'd stay where we'll hold the course until the end of 22. And Abu Dhabi says, no, we want to revisit the quotas in April of 22, not the end of 22. Okay. So that is, the, that is the technical explanation of the, of the disagreement in OPEC. Compared to past disagreements, this is quite minor, but it is unsettling. And that, combined with a number of other factors, has had a negative impact on the price. Well, I mean, whenever you inject uncertainty into any of these kinds of markets, that's the worst thing you can do, right? When we don't know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, all these markets get a little bit spooked. 
I had the opportunity to uh, interview, uh, meet uh, Dr. Sobroto, the Secretary General, General OPEC at that time from Indonesia, and he gave me these words, and these take-it-to-the-bank words. The only thing certain about oil is uncertainty. I said, well, boy, I learned a lot from that. <laughs> but that was decades ago. And there's a lot of other twists in this, too. There's the COVID outbreaks. I mean, Japan has just changed the rules again. There's the U.S. dollar. The strength of the U.S. dollar is always a problem. And, and so there are a whole pile of moving parts on the oil price, of which uh, the OPEC non-decision or the OPEC kick the can down the road um, uh, is, is one of many. And so it, it's really too bad. Uh, just to, but in terms of prices, I went and checked the checked the files this morning. I looked at Western Tech, West Texas Intermediate. There was a couple of months in uh, in 2018 uh, where the price slightly got just just almost average 72 bucks for the month, which is where it is this morning. These are the highest prices in seven years. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're not hurting that bad. I mean, it's just such a vast improvement over the past five years oh. that. Uh, and and, and if, anyway, so so uh, I think this will be all right. So okay, so what do you expect to see? I mean, are you just going to ride this out then until their next schedule? Are they having any more talks, or are we looking at twenty twenty two now before they get back around the table? Uh, looking at the trade press, uh, Russia's uh, trying to talk some sense into everybody. Okay. I think in the end, what happens is is, is the meetings are very public. Uh, when they don't work, it's all very public. Uh, but they, they're they're continually talking to each other, particularly Saudi Arabia and you uh, and other Arabs. I mean, they're neighbors, right? <laughs> and in the Gulf, mm-hmm. and they've been working together for some time. I don't believe that the uh, you know the EU. EA's uh, uh, request is unreasonable uh, based on increased production. But the, this is always vacillating. You know, the, the, there's Iran, there's an OPEC, an on again, off again, an OPEC member. Their, their oil may come back on if they uh, renew the, uh, if they drop the sanctions in the U.S. as they talk about their nuclear program. There could be an outbreak of peace in Venezuela. They used to be a big OPEC producer. Yeah. Their, their, their production's down to a fraction of what it was. Iraq has got tremendous uh, to, uh, increase potential. Uh, uh, production increase potential if if you could go there and, and figure out who runs the place and so this is it's always dynamic um it's just that we you know it's been just so great to, to watch the oil price go in the right right direction for so for the last nine months and in, in alberta and the pressure it's taken off oh. so many in the community and the oil patch and the oil service industry it's just great you hate to you hate to wreck the party but reality is looking back decades there's so many moving parts to this right. the good news is is the the five year drop in development is is the, the the macro factors I think still work in oil's favor. If you look at the growth in demand and the recovery of the economy, which you maybe set back briefly, and you look at the future uh, the future supply, uh, I think in the in the long run, looking out a couple of years, I don't see anything like the price collapse as we've seen uh, last year or in 2014. Nothing like it. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I mean, well, so, I, you know, you're feeling pretty good about where we are. Uh, it's just so much better than it used to be, and that's I guess that's the advantages of being at this for a while. Is, is uh, <laughs> the other the other aspect of Alberta that doesn't get anywhere near the credit it deserves is the price of natural gas. We had a, we had a real problem with the price of natural gas in the summertime in Alberta just a couple of years ago, where some days it went no bid. The eco spot price was zero, right? And now it's uh, it's on the right side of three bucks and holding really steady. And it was really natural gas that powered the turnaround in the in the nineties in Alberta. And there's LNG project. I think they're going to finish this thing. So we're we're you know not not the one trick pony we were. I guess is on on just oil. We we tend to focus on oil because mm-hmm. it's on the front page every day. 
but the the gas business is just fantastic compared to how it has how it's been for the last few years. Well, there's some good news. I appreciate it, David. Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do this again. Thank you very much, sir. I uh, appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Bye. That is uh, David Yeager, who is a consulting advisor to oil service execs. He's an energy policy analyst and writer, uh, seeing some good um, indications for oil and gas in the province of Alberta. And as he said, prices are higher than they've been in a long, long time. Just to go through the cabinet changes, really nothing earth-shattering. A lot of people had eyes on Chandro and LaGrange. They're still there. Uh, no changes there. If there's one interesting one, the more I look at it, it, it falls under the portfolio of Minister of Culture. Um, Ron Orr is the new Minister of Culture. Ron Orr is one of the absolute steadfast Jason Kenney supporters within that caucus. Uh, who does he replace? Uh, Leila Ahir, um, who was one of only two caucus members or cabinet ministers anyway, to publicly speak out about the patio party and say that Jason Kenney should apologize. It's a really bad look. So she's gone and or is in. Uh, is that punishment? I don't know. I the beholder, perhaps. Uh, let's get some insight on exactly what happened today with uh, Dr. Dwayne Bratt, a political scientist. Uh, Dwayne, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hey, Shane. Largely ho-hum, right? I mean... Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 if I was to summarize it, it, it's the old political tactic of you know, rewarding your, your friends and, yep. and, and punishing your enemies. You know, that one of the ways to deal with caucus discontent is to give out more goodies, give out more posts. And so cabinet got bigger today. And the other is to make an example of someone who dared to criticize the leader. And uh, he checked off all of those boxes today. Yeah, I mean, I hear that straight up that's a punishment, right, for going public and oh, saying uh, it was a... I re- have no, no doubt about that. There was no scandal involving her. There's no real evidence of, of underperformance. Um, and, but she did come out. I mean, so did Raj and Sonny. Yeah, so, she, she got uh, moved over. She's still a cabinet but, minister. Though. But her language was not as yeah. explicit as Leela here. And it wasn't just about the Sky Palace. It was also about Kenny's defense of John A. McDonald in the aftermath of the initial discoveries of the, the mass graves in, in Kamloops. Mm. And so, and I would also say she did it in English, right? And, and you know, to a much wider audience where Shazim Rani did it on Red FM, um, right, yeah. a South Asian radio station. So, you know, she spoke much more highly uh, or much uh, to a broader audience. Um, and, uh, and she was first. Right, so, yeah, she broke the, gra- the, gra- the glass there, yeah. And what? not only that, um, they divided her job and gave it to three different people. <laughs> like <laughs> she was, uh, you know, minister of culture, multiculturalism, and a, and status of women, and they divided that into into three. And so, Ron Orr is um, well. He's he's firmly in the Kenny camp, right? He's he's a, he's well. An I mean, he, he said that 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 God put yeah, Kenny yeah. here to deal with uh, times like this. So you've got the loyalty there. Uh, do we read anything into uh, Jason Luan being moved over and Mike Ellis being oh, I, to take over? No, I don't, moved up. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think this is also a case. I mean, he took on the heavy lifting um, in a very controversial file around safe injection sites. And as a result of that, um, whether you like what he did or you didn't, uh, he was clearly doing the bidding of Jason Kenney and has been rewarded by by moving from an associate minister to a full minister. 
Um, a lot of people were wondering what would happen with Shandro and Lagrange, and I think that would have been very telling if he had removed them. They oh, both he, stay he in, wasn't right? moving. He wasn't moving any of those. That would be, almost be an admission of defeat if he did, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's so out of character with with Jason Kenny. So while there are a lot of people and a lot of moves today, um, Taves is still there where he was. Shandro's still there. Lagrange is still there. Nixon is still there. Like, all of the key people in the key portfolios, none of that has has changed. What he has done is, I think, deal with caucus relations, as, as I explained off the top. Mike Ellis, another illustration, right? So he was party whip. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, was part of the, the, the way that they dealt with um, Drew Barnes and Todd Lowen and, and the ejection of them. And he has gone from party whip to an associate minister now. Dwayne, what about, same sort of thing. Right. What about the fact that you take a look at the names? Um, we've got Calgary Northeast, we've got Calgary Pagan, we've got Calgary North, we've got Calgary Glenmore, we've got Calgary West, we've got Calgary Foothills. This is a very Calgary-heavy announcement that was happening today. Can you read anything into that? It's always been a Calgary cabinet. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, part of that is there isn't a whole lot of choice in Edmonton. And and so you've got a choice of one, and he's in cabinet. Um but it's rural Alberta, which well, yeah, is yeah. I mean, didn't he have to try to build some support in the rural communities? I mean, uh, possibly, or he feels that the real battleground remains in in Calgary. Okay, uh, it's it's tough to be a Calgary MLA and not be in cabinet. Um, size of cabinet. Uh, is the other interesting thing is that there were uh, two of the sixteen UCP MLAs who who signed on to that anti. COVID restrictions letter, um, two of them did make cabinet today, Ron Orr and Nate Horner. Right. Um, Ron Orr, we've just discussed. Nate Horner, you know, I think he's like the third or fourth Horner generation to, to be a cabinet minister in Alberta. So, I mean, he had a strong pedigree. There was uh, a belief that uh, he, he should have been in cabinet the, the first time. And so I don't think he held the, the COVID a letter against him, but he seemed to with everybody else. So, you know, some get a pass. Tanya Fur, for example, um, who was uh, punted from cabinet earlier, was part of the Aloha Gate people. She's been brought back in. So all is forgiven there. Okay. Um, size of cabinet. I mean, it was a pretty small cabinet before the announcement today. So, um, you know, it's it's not enormous at this point. A couple of portfolios added, as you mentioned. Um, but when you're picking a fight with nurses over 3% of their wages and you're increasing cabinet, how's that going to play out, do you think? Obviously, that's going to be a talking point. Oh, it, it'll be a talking point. It, it's a minor talking point. Yeah. I think there's enough to discuss wage rollbacks after a pandemic of nurses that have been talking about the, uh, the size of uh, cabinet. Exactly. Okay, Dwayne, I appreciate the insight as always. Thank you very much. Okay. You're welcome, Shay. You bet. That is Dwayne Bratt, political scientist, uh, giving us some insight here. And yeah, um, you know, people were expecting some big things, possibly wondering if that might happen. But, um, you know, if you're going to shift from Tyler Shandro or Adriana Lagrange in the middle of what they've got going on, um, it might seem a, um, an admission of defeat or a sign of weakness that you're going to, you got to stick with the, with the people that got you this far and, and ride this thing out, I think is probably the thinking when it comes to 
uh, Premier Jason Kenney. He was asked about that at the news conference that followed the swearing-in ceremony today in terms of uh, why didn't you move Health Minister Tyler Shandro to a different portfolio? And Kenny, uh, Kenny had full support of Tyler Shandro. I think he uh, has done a tremendous job of helping to lead Alberta through uh, this brutal pandemic. We've ended up with a COVID per capita fatality rate that is 27% lower than Canada's fatality rate. That is uh, about one-third lower than the fatality rates in Europe and the United States. And we've managed to do that with less damaging public health restrictions. I won't pretend that we got everything perfectly right, but I think that speaks to a strong record on the part of Alberta and Albertans in facing the challenge of the pandemic. And now uh, Minister Shandro can take uh, two years of hard-earned experience uh, to apply that to um, uh, moving forward with our uh, surgical initiative radically to reduce surgical wait times, to put the patient at the center of the medical system, also to implement some of the recommendations of the Ernst & Young report that we committed to in the last election on finding um, on eliminating waste and inefficiency in the health system so we can move those dollars uh, to patient care. So uh, I, um, I, I thank uh, uh, Tyler for his hard work and look forward to uh, his continued leadership in that critical portfolio. Okay, so Kenny's all on board with Tyler Shandro. And I think one of the things that I picked up in listening to the Premier there is take the next two years. And I think you, when you're elected to a four-year or five-year mandate the way that the Premier was, and you want to do the kinds of things that you know are going to cause a backlash, you want to do them early. The pandemic probably pushed some of those things back. But if you're talking about dealing with doctors, you're talking about dealing with curriculum and teachers and nurses, the plan always is do that early in your mandate, and then hopefully it dies down and goes away by the time you have to go to the polls. They have two years. Um, things are going to be drastically different two years from now uh, compared to way they are right now. And I think that's a big part of the calculation. Um, You can't base what the election will look like two years from now on what we see today. Things could be better. Things could be worse. If you're Jason Kenney, you're probably thinking it can only go up, right? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.